Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio Acts chapter 15 verses 1 through 21 covering the famous Jerusalem Council. Our context is this. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas have just returned to Antioch from their first missionary journey. They took out from Antioch and they came back to Antioch and they reported to the church all the wonderful doings about all the Gentiles. There were some Jews too, but a lot of Gentiles that got saved there. And so they told the church at Antioch. So now we pick up the story in Acts 15, verse 1. I'm going to use the NIV Study Bible's chronology, which says that the first journey was in 47 and 48 B.C., 46, 47, 48 B.C., and then 49 and 50, excuse me, A.D., excuse me, and then 49 and 50 is when the Jerusalem Council took place. So that's approximately where we are chronologically. And, of course, the Jerusalem Council is going to take place in Jerusalem. So we take up the story in Acts 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, here we have the ugly problem of legalism, which was the early church's besetting problem, legalism. Now, who were these men? They were probably from the party of the Pharisees, the dear old Pharisees who crucified Jesus and who went around putting burdens on people's going from east to west, finding converts and proselytes and putting burdens on people's backs that they couldn't bear. The same Pharisees that Jesus spent his whole ministry preaching against, those who loved the place of honor at the, at the banquets and who went walking down the streets saying, I'm giving alms and, and, and wanting everybody to look at him. The same stinking Pharisees, except these Pharisees were believers. So let's give them that credit. But they had a lot of baggage. And this just goes to show Lots of Christians have a lot of baggage. You know, I heard last night at a meeting people were talking about Kanye West, who's apparently just gotten saved, and he has a lot of baggage. Well, the baggage has to be dealt with. We don't say they're not saved. The person is not saved, but we say that he needs to be cleaned up. The fish is caught, but he's not cleaned yet. Now, when I say that they are brothers, the NIV Study Bible and John Gill and Adam Clark all say that, and of course I believe they're correct. Now, these brothers came from Judea up to Antioch. We're, in verse 1, we're still in the, at the church at Antioch. And these brothers came up to Antioch. Now, just because these brothers came from Judea up to Antioch, that does not mean that they represented accurately the views of the Jerusalem elders and the apostles, as the NIV Study Bible says. And how do we know that? Because in verse 24 in Acts 15, in the letter that the Jerusalem church sent out to the whole church, to the whole surrounding areas, they put in that letter this phrase, Acts 15:24, because we have heard that some, without our authorization, without our authorization, went out from on us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts. In other words, we're so sorry, guys, but we didn't have anything to do with these idiots that went up here and unsettled you and got you all upset. You know, there's a maximum in politics. You know, your enemies are one thing, but God save you from your friends. The people who are close to you but are, have perverted your message just enough to become totally obnoxious. And so the Jerusalem church had a problem. They were being tainted with the legalism of these legalistic brethren. Now, to say that you have to be circumcised to be saved, as John Gill points out, that was an extreme position even among the Jews. These, these, these Judaizing believers, these legalistic believers, were even more extreme than some of the Jewish rabbis. John Gill points out that some rabbis speak of the godly among the nations, among the Gentiles. And also some rabbis speak of proselytes of the gate who shall be saved. 
and proselytes at the gate, my friends, were not circumcised. So John Gill, the rabbinic expert, I think knows what he's talking about. These guys were really extreme here, what they were saying. You've got to get circumcised to get saved. Of course, the American equivalent or the uh, modern church equivalent, you've got to go to church and get saved. You've got to be in this theological stream to be saved. You've got to be in this denomination to be saved. That would be extreme. Uh, even legalists, legalists in America aren't that bad usually, but it would be similar to that. Now, you can imagine, as Adam Clark says, the disturbance caused in the Antioch church by this because these legalist believers were from the capital of Judaism in Jerusalem, and they had a lot of sway, a lot of clout. Maybe they know what they're talking about. I mean, the first Christians were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. Maybe we need to get circumcised to get believed. So there were a lot of, and there were a lot of young converts in the early church like this, and they might have been swayed. So it was a serious, serious problem. We go to verse 2 in Acts 15, but after Paul and Barnabas, they engaged them in serious argument and debate, and this shows, folks, you can't just say, well, we just love you, brother. What's right for me is right for me, and what's right for you is right for me. Why can't we just all get along and just get along? Unity, unity, unity. No, there is never unity at any price. At some point, you have to stand up and say, no, this far and no further. And Paul and Barnabas did, and they engaged them in serious argument and debate, which shows that it is not a sin to debate. I cannot tell you how many times I've listened to wussy-pussy Christians talk about we just need to get along, don't talk about this, don't argue something. No, if it's an important issue, you've got to argue it. Now, I don't think you ought to argue over things like did Jesus descend into hell or is man dichotomous or trichotomous. I mean, you know, you can discuss that thing, but that's not enough to get somebody kicked out of the church or something that's going to destroy the, the church. However, something like do the, are the dead physically raised in resurrection? hyper-preterist movements, contention. I've seen churches split wide open over that. That had to be dealt with, and it was dealt with in my experience. And, of course, it caused a lot of division. It did save the church, however. It's necessary. This debate was necessary. So the church arranged for Paul and Barnabas and some others of them to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem concerning this controversy. Verse 2 says, which church arranged it? That's the Antiochian church, the church at Antioch arranged for Paul and Barnabas, notice that it was not the elders of the church at Antioch, it was not Paul and Barnabas who were apostles at Antioch, it was the church. Paul and Barnabas didn't just say, we're going to go down there. The whole church, folks, consensual agreement. You never see Paul and Barnabas pulling rank because they're the big shots. They were leaders, but they were not absolute potentates. Some others went with Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem, or up to Jerusalem, I should say, I guess, but we don't know who those others were. The others might include Titus. That depends on how you interpret Galatians 2, 1 through 10, because Paul refers to a visit to Jerusalem in that passage in Galatians 2, but nobody knows whether he was referring to his famine relief visit of Acts 11, the poor relief visit in Acts 11, or was he referring to this Jerusalem council? If he was referring to the Jerusalem council, then Titus went along with him because in Galatians 2.1, Paul says, After 14 years, I'm going to begin to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. Well, okay, we don't know. So it doesn't matter. We know Paul and Barnabas were the two main guys that went down to Jerusalem. Now, they went up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. Who were the apostles in Jerusalem? Well, the famous pillar apostles were James, Peter, and John. John Gill said that those three were in Jerusalem at this time. James and Peter are mentioned as taking a part in the debate at the Jerusalem Council, so we know they were there. We don't know whether John was there, as I, uh, and that also depends on Galatians 2, 1 through 10, where it mentions John, 
where it mentions John as being there in Galatians 2.9, when James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, recognized as pillars, acknowledging the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas. So perhaps John was there, depending on when Galatians 2, 1-10 occurred, either the famine relief or the, or the Jerusalem council visit. Well, it doesn't matter. I just We know that James and Peter are there. We're going to focus on their part in the Jerusalem council in just a minute. Now, why was the council held in Jerusalem? Well, it makes sense. That's where the Judaizers came from, and that was the mother church. And so they went to Jerusalem. Now, I mentioned that the whole church at Antioch, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas up to Jerusalem. Now, it could be argued that the elders decided for the church and were just not mentioned. The elders were put in place of the church. I don't think so, because the common pattern in Acts is mutual consensual decision-making by all the church. So I don't think it was just the elders that sent them off. And if it was, that's not what Luke said. He said the church sent them off. So this is speculation to say that the church sent them off because the elders were speaking for the church. We go to verse 3 in Acts 15. When they had been sent on their way by the church, by the Antioch church, and they as Paul and Barnabas, had been sent on their way, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, explaining in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they created great joy among all the brothers. Yes, sir, Gentiles coming into the church. Great joy when people get saved. I, nothing makes me happier. Like when I saw Kanye West leading all these people to Christ, I said, oh, boy, that's good news. They passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria. Phoenicia, of course, is due south of Antioch of Syria, where Paul and Barnabas were meeting in the church of Antioch at Syria. Phoenicia is due south, present-day Lebanon, on the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And then you go down further south, you end up in Israel, and then you keep going further south, you end up in Samaria, which is the area right north of Jerusalem. So it was on the way from Antioch to Jerusalem. They explained in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. What conversion of the Gentiles? The conversion of the Gentiles that took place on the first journey, which Paul and Barnabas had just been on a couple, couple years previously. Now, Paul and Barnabas were sent on by their way by the church at Antioch. What is, there are some options as to what does it mean to be sent by the church at Antioch. John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown suggest that perhaps some brethren accompanied Paul and Barnabas part of the way. This is an Eastern custom. In China, they would sung you, and we call it sung want Do you want to sung me? That means you go to a Chinese person's house, and then it's time to leave. Instead of leaving you at the door, they walk you all the way to the nearest bus stop or in the driving rain. But they got to accompany you and to send you on your way. And, and this is Eastern culture. I'm just guessing. Maybe that's what they were doing, sending people on the way. But um, it could also mean, as John Gill says, to send somebody on the way meant to send Paul and Barnabas on the way was to provide Paul and Barnabas with the things necessary for the journey. Watchman Nee's got a whole little booklet on that point about in the matter of sending and receiving and i went through the scriptures on that and there's no question that usually apostles when they went somewhere the people that their host would send them on the way by providing them with passage on a ship or food and things like that just to help them travel now how what there were churches on the way in phoenicia and samaria of course we know from acts one you know the gospel went from jerusalem to samaria to the outermost points points of the earth Actually, in Acts 11, there's a specific mention of, of evangelism going on in Phoenicia. Churches were started there after the persecution which followed Stephen's execution, which occurred in Acts 7. We, we read in Acts 11:19, 19, 
Those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the message to no one except Jews. So there were some Jewish people in Phoenicia and on Cyprus and in Antioch who had gotten saved. Of course, now the Gentiles are coming in, but this is very early at the time of Stephen's persecution, which was, what, thirty in the early 30s, maybe in the mid-30s. Peter goes to Cornelius' house. He lets the Gentiles save there. And so somewhere around the early 30s in Acts 11, Phoenicia, Jewish people in Phoenicia had gotten evangelized. And so Paul and Barnabas visit them on the way down. And again, just a visit from traveling people who've been on the foreign mission field and have seen people get converted and just them talking about it and creates great joy in the people. You should always listen to missionaries and talk about what they've done. They go through incredible hardship. I have talked to professional missionaries. There's not but about two or 3,000 of them in all the body of Christ in the world today, I read somewhere. And I've talked to some of them, and boy, they are inspiring. And I know that they have faults, and a lot of them fail because what they're doing is a hard job. But the ones that succeed, my hats are off to them. I've seen them firsthand, talked to them. I, t- got a, I know somebody that I befriended in Beijing. He's from Georgia. I'm talking about the state of Georgia, next to my state of South Carolina. And this brother just was routinely talking about how he'd gotten a fake passport. I asked him, what you got this book for about um, traveling in Spain, I think it was. Oh, he said, oh, it's got something there good about making fake passports. And I said, man, you live a dangerous life. And then he told me how he either had gone or was going to go. I forgot the sequence, but he ended up going to North Korea, ministering to... North Korean Christians who had nothing but rice to eat. It was freezing cold in April, I think it was, but it's cold up there in April. And they had no meat to eat. And they gave the little piece of meat they had to my friend from Georgia, the missionary guy. And he told about walking down the streets and looking at all the stores, a bookstore that had nothing in it but one book, a book that praised the virtues of Kim Jing Jung Il or Sung. I can't remember, whichever might have been the father of the little fat boy in the pajamas that rules North Korea now and how the lights went off all the time and how drab and ugly the cities were and all. And anyway, my point is, I listened to people like that. And so did the disciples in Phoenicia and Samaria listen to Paul and Barnabas as they told of the spread of the gospel of Christ, which after all is what the book of Acts is about, is it not? We go to verse 4 in Acts 15. When they, that's Paul and Barnabas, arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, by the church of Jerusalem, the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. Well, first of all, notice that the whole church welcomed them, not just the apostles, not just the elders, the whole church. This is not a dictatorship, folks. The church of Christ, especially the early church, is not a dictatorship. The whole church met them. Now, I doubt this was all done in one meeting. They had to greet them in their private homes and put them up. There was just two of them. And they probably went from house to house greeting, greeting the brothers. They didn't have a one big building to accommodate them. And because we tend to read things conditioned by our own cultural mindset, we think of a big church building. They didn't have that back then. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown disagrees with, with what I just said. They say, this, and they say this, quote, Evidently at a meeting formally convened for this purpose, the deputation being one so influential and from a church of such note. Okay, well, that's possible. It could be a meeting... But this is a question I have, and I'm going to cite this question. It's a problem I've got. We obviously have the church involved in the Jerusalem Council, the whole church, not just the apostles and the elders. But where did the church, where did the church meet? They met in houses. Where do you have a house big enough for this kind of meeting? Well, there were a lot of wealthy houses. I've got a friend who has done a lot of work on 
looking at Roman houses. He, I went to Pompeii with him and looked at the burnout city that was buried under the volcano, and he found a house in there. It was obviously a wealthy person's house, and he measured it off, and he figured out he could get, I think it was 70 people in there, maybe 100. Some of these rich people's houses, they, they were open without a lot of furniture, and you could put a lot of people in there, so maybe that's what it was. Don't know. It's all speculation. So they go down to Jerusalem, and this is Paul's third visit to Jerusalem, as Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown say. The first visit was when he had been, how long was uh, Three years, I think it was, in the Arabian Desert and in Damascus. He came down to Jerusalem. He tried to witness to the Hellenistic Jews and argue with them, and they got mad, and they were getting ready to boot him out, and they did. And Barnabas got Paul and sent him to Tarsus to get him out of harm's way. So that was the first mention. Acts 9.26, when he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they, they did not believe he was a disciple. So that was the first visit. And then the second visit was the famine relief visit in Acts 11.30. They did this, that's the church in Antioch, sending it, the famine relief, to the elders as at the church of Jerusalem by means of Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas had been in Jerusalem when Paul went there on his first visit, and then Barnabas came down with Saul on the second visit. So Barnabas and Saul were together a lot, and they were very familiar to the people of Jerusalem. And so they, it was logical they would go down to Jerusalem to discuss this weighty issue of legalism. We go to verse 5 in Acts 15. But some of the believers from the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, perhaps some of these Pharisees had gone to Antioch and stirred up the trouble, and then they came back down to Jerusalem to present their case. Or perhaps there are other Pharisees who were preaching the same thing. We don't know. But at any point, there was enough of them to stand up. Notice that standing up that shows that it was not just a meeting between the apostles. It's just three of them and the elders. I don't know how many elders there'd be. Say 10, 13. But you don't stand up when you've got that many people talking. It's, I don't think, at least not in our culture, maybe in the Jewish culture they did, but it seems funny to be standing up in front of a small group of people like that. This makes me think that the council consisted of a lot of the brothers of the church at Jerusalem. All they could fit in wherever they were meeting, at least, because they, the Pharisees stood up to make themselves heard. Acts 15, verse 6, Then the apostles and the elders assembled to consider this matter. Now, here are some options. First option, only the apostles and elders assembled together outside of the other brother in the church. In other words, typically how elders' meetings are today, they all the elders get behind the closed doors and discuss things, and then they get up and announce it from the pulpit, and you don't have a darn thing to say about it. That's the Adam Clark option. I don't believe it. How does that view handle the, these? Well, I'm going to give you the other view. This is John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown's view. The ordinary brethren assembled with the apostles and elders. So when the apostles and the elders assembled to consider this matter, they were accompanied by other ordinary brethren. Now, it doesn't say that in this verse. But John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown believe that that's the case, and they cite three key verses here in Acts 15. First, Acts 15:22. Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to select men who were among them and to send them to Antioch. That's after the decision had been made and they were sending out the letter, the whole church, along with the apostles and elders, sent that letter out. That's verse 22. Acts 15, 12. Then the whole assembly fell silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describing all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. The whole assembly fell silent and listened. That doesn't sound like just the apostles and the elders, does it now? Acts 15, verse 23. 
and they wrote letters by them after this manner, the apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are the Gentiles in Antioch. This is the, the salutation in the letter that was sent out from the Jerusalem Council. I use the King James translation there because it's it backs up my point because it says the apostles and the elders and the brethren send greeting unto the other brethren outside of Jerusalem. But there is a translation ambiguity there that New American Standard Bible translates it this way. They sent the letter by them, quote, the apostles and the brethren who are elders. So that, in the NASB translation, the letter is signed only by or is sent by only the apostles and elders. Acts 15.23, this is the Holman Christian Study Bible translation. They wrote this letter to be delivered by them from the apostles and the elders, your brothers. So the brothers refers to the elders, not all the brothers in the church. However, I've got another translation that backs up the KJV, the Mace New Testament, whom they charged, this is Acts 15.23, whom they charged with this letter, the apostles, the presbyters, and the brethren. So the brethren are split out from the apostles and brothers. In other words, brethren is not used in opposition with elders, but brethren is split out from the elders and refers to a distinct body of people. Well, all right, that one's ambiguous, but the other two are not. The whole assembly fell silent listening to Barnabas and Saul. The apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to send people. Folks, it was the whole church. It was a consensual meeting. We go now to Acts 15, 7. And there had been much after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. Now the choice that God made was to choose Peter to go up and preach to Cornelius and his Gentile friends, relatives, servants, soldiers, and believers up there in, the, in his house at Caesarea. And Peter was chosen. Remember, he had visions. Somebody's going to show up from, you're, you're in Yapa, Peter, and you're sleeping at the top of the, on the, on the roof of the house. And you get a vision that some people are going to come down from Cornelius' house and... Well, actually, the vision was of the uh, dirty animals, the unclean animals in the sheet let down to eat what I've created. Don't call it unclean. So you go to the Gentiles. So Peter had a vision and a great story, a great testimony to back up the fact that the Gentiles were included in the message of salvation now. So that's what he's talking about when he said God made a choice among you. Among you Jewish brethren, it was me, Peter, that was chosen to go speak to the Gentiles. So I am speaking with firsthand experience. The Gentiles would hear the gospel, and they would believe, which they did. Let's read Acts 10, 44-45, which describes Peter's experience in Cornelius' house. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. The Jewish believers who had come with Peter were astounded. They saw them speaking in tongues. That's how they knew they had gotten saved. Now, notice here that Peter stood up. Just like the, in verse 5, the Pharisees stood up to address this assembly. Now, Peter stood up, which, again, that doesn't sound like a small group of apostles, just apostles and just elders, and P P Paul and Barnabas. It had the whole assembly, plus you had some Pharisees in there, too, some believing Pharisees who were members of the church of Jerusalem. After all, they were part of the consensual decision-making here, even though they took the wrong side. They eventually yielded, by the way, because... None of their position, their position was not included in that letter that was sent out after the decision was made. Now notice, there's more debate here. After there had been much debate, just as there had been much debate up in the church of Antioch between Paul and Barnabas, 
trying to convince these Judaizers they were wrong, there's much debate. This is, you know, the, the church word, the Greek word that's used for church is ekklesia, which is a Greek word, and I've just been reading a lot of Greek history, and I've really kind of tuned into this. Those Greeks debated everything. They had room in the Penix, well, I think it was 6,000 people could get on that in that rocky rocky area and just jabber away. Wait, no, no, I think we ought to execute him. No, I think we ought to ostracize him. No, I think we ought to fight the Spartans. No, I think we ought to fight the Persians. And they debated and debated and debated. They were famous for that. And that's the word that's used for the Christian assembly, ecclesia. They, you have to debate in the church. Oh, but no, we're just supposed to sit here and listen to three hymns and the soft organ music and be told what to do. No, that is not the New Testament church. If you're in a church like that, I have a free piece of advice. Leave. I mean, be nice about it, but no, you don't, you're not just a pew sitter. You don't want to be a pew sitter. Get into a church where you can be actively involved in debate, even if you are a relatively young Christian. After all, if you have the right to speak, so does everybody else, including the more mature brothers. And if you say something stupid, they'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about getting out of hand. But don't be in a situation where you're just dictated to. There was much debate here. And again, not just between the apostles and the elders, but everybody. Now, what Peter is doing, he's going to appeal to experience here. We're going to have Peter appealing to his experience at Cornelius' house. Later on, we're going to have James, excuse me, uh, Paul and Barnabas appealing to their experience on the first journey. Gentiles are getting saved, Judaizers, and they ain't circumcised. So what are you doing going around saying you've got to be circumcised to believe? And then uh, Luke is going to finish off this description of the council with the apostle James, who's going, to, who's going to go to Scripture. He's going to quote Amos to show that the Gentiles are going to be saved, even in the Hebrew Scriptures. So, the apostles were debating. Now, they didn't just pull rank. I mean, you know, they were inspired in their writings, right? Yes, their words were inspired, inspired words from God. But in practice, in their daily life, they still had to debate to establish the truth. They put on their pants one leg at a time, just like everybody else did. They couldn't just pull rank and say, hey, we wrote the, we are writers of inspired letters. So listen to us. Of course, most of those letters hadn't been written yet, but you get the idea. They didn't talk like that. Peter gets up and tells about his experience in Acts 10 at Cornelius' house, and this is the last time we hear about him in Acts. He disappears. He mentions the early days this happened. That was an, about 15 years ago. Cornelius' house, let's say, was roughly 35, mid-30s. We're now at 80, 50 in the Jerusalem Council. It was 15 years since the Holy Spirit had fallen on the house of Cornelius on the Gentiles there. We go to Acts 15, verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, this is Peter continuing with his story, testified to them, to the Gentiles in Cornelius' house, how? By giving the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. Well, how did God give the Holy Spirit to us apostles, is who Peter means? Well, that would be at Acts 2, at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell, the famous story, everybody got, the Holy Spirit fell, and everybody started speaking in tongues. And and this, of course, again, is uh, objective-type testimony that Peter's using. They could see that, and so if there were no tongues, it could easily be denied that the Gentiles actually believed. The Judaizers could say, no, they didn't believe. How, how do you know they believed? They just say they believed. They weren't circumcised, therefore they weren't believed. But, but Peter could say, no, nah, they believed. They were all speaking in tongues just like we did at Pentecost, the original Pentecost at Acts 2. So again, Peter is appealing to objective, credible evidence. He said, as he reported to the Jerusalem 
church back in Acts 11, 15 years earlier. He said in Acts 11, 17, Therefore, if God gave them, the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius, the same gift that he also gave to us, us apostles at Pentecost in Acts 2, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? In other words, how can I tell these Gentiles, you can't be saved unless you're circumcised? Peter mentions in Acts 15, 8, at the council, Jerusalem council, he said, God who knows the heart. What he's referring to is, is that the heart is on the inside and circumcision is on the outside and the heart is what counts. He was referring to Cornelius's sincere heart to know the truth of the gospel. Cornelius was uncircumcised on the outside, but he was quote-unquote circumcised on the inside. He had a circumcision of the heart. And that, Peter says, is the true ground for admission into the church of Christ, or Peter implies that. We go to Acts 15, verse 9. Peter continues, He, God, made no distinction between us, the Jews, us Jews, and them, the Gentiles, in Cornelius' house, he, God made no distinction, cleansing their hearts by faith. Which, of course, is Peter's point. It's, sal point. it's salvation by faith, not salvation by circumcision. The Gentiles will save by faith, not by keeping the law. Now, notice that the Gentiles at Cornelius' house were cleansed. They had their hearts cleansed by faith. Now, that's something we don't talk about, I guess, a lot. I guess we do. Like washed in the blood, you wash your wife with the water of the word. This idea of cleansing, getting rid of the nastiness of sin. 1 Corinthians 6.11 And some of you used to be like this. You nasty Gentile Corinthians. They were sinners, boy. But Paul continues, But you were washed. You were sanctified. Sanctified means made holy. Consecrated to God. Separated from the world. And you were washed. You were washed means you were cleaned. Cleansed. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we move on to verses 10 and 11 in Acts 15. Now then, Peter continues Speaking to the council, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? Now here, this is an interesting question. Why does Peter say that their ancestors couldn't bear this yoke? I mean, the law of God was something that liberated the Jews. It didn't put a yoke on them. And I think it's because they were trying to take anybody that took the law of Moses and tried to use it as an instrument of salvation not going to be able to keep it. The purpose of the law was to point out sin, not to get people saved. And so this is what they were doing. They were trying to, hey, we're Jews now, we're the chosen people, and we're keeping the law, and therefore we're justified before God, and we're going to have eternal life. Peter might have also been referring to the Pharisaic additions to the law, which were even more obnoxious and hard to keep because they were, the law of Moses was holy, was good, even, even if it was, even as it was being misused as an instrument of salvation. But the Pharisees' laws they weren't holy. They were stupid and terrible from the get-go. But at any rate, I'm not sure who what Peter's referring to here, but he says, I think he's referring to the whole gamut of law, Mosaic and traditional rabbinic law, Pharisaic law, because he's a Pharisee speaking now. You know, you know what they're going to believe. So he says, look, why are you trying to put a yoke? A yoke is something that ties you down like you're tied, like two oxen are tied together with a yoke. It's a perfect symbol of slavery. Why are you trying to put a yoke on the disciples' necks? And make them pull like oxen pulling a plow through the unplowed field. Nobody can bear that kind of nonsense. Verse 11, Peter says, On the contrary, we believe we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in the same way they are. And of course, the same way they are, they're saved without having to be circumcised. Because I saw what I saw in Cornelius' house, and we Jews are saved the same way. Here's some classic scriptures on being free from the yoke of the law. Galatians 5.1, Christ has liberated us to be free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. The yoke stands for slavery. 
Matthew 11:28-29. Come to me, Jesus says, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you, take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. Now there, the yoke is not a yoke of slavery, a yoke of the law. It's the yoke of the law of Christ. Because Jesus is a yoke that gives guidance and freedom. Now, i got a great story here that I pulled out of uh, John Gill, excuse me, Adam Clark, uh, quoting a rabbi in, the, in a midrash, and to show that even the Jews realized that, this, that the way the Jews were trying to keep the law was oppressive to them. All right, this story is told in Yalkut Simeone, part one, folio 229, where Korah, that's the famous Korah who did the rebellion that ended up getting swallowed up in the earthquake, where Korah is represented as showing the oppressive nature of the law and avarice of its priest in justification of his rebellion. So Korah is trying to say, the reason I rebelled against the law is because the law sucks and it's oppressive. Now, of course, Korah was wrong. But here's this interesting story that this rabbi makes up and tells. There was, said he, Korah, a widow in our neighborhood who had two orphan children. She had one field, and when she began to plow it, one came and said, Thou shalt not plow with an ox and an ass together. When she went to sow it, he said, Thou shalt not sow thy field with diverse seeds. This is quoting quotations from the law, of course. When she began to reap and to gather the sheaves together, he said, Leave a handful in the corners of the field for the poor. When she prepared to thresh it, he said, Give me the wave offering and the first and second tithes. She did as she was commanded, and then went and sold her field and brought two ewes, that she might clothe herself and family with the wool and get profit by the lambs. When they brought forth their lambs, Aaron came and said, Give me the firstlings. For the holy blessed God has said, All the firstborn whatsoever openeth the womb shall be thine. She yielded to his demands and gave him two lambs. When shearing time came, he said, Give me the first fruits of the wool. Give me the first fruits of the wool. When the widow had done this, she said, I cannot stand before this man. I will kill my sheep and eat them. When she had killed the sheep, Aaron came and said, Give me the shoulder and the jaws and the ventricle. The widow said, Though I have killed my sheep, I am not delivered from this man. I therefore consecrate the whole to God. Then Aaron said, All belongs to me. For the holy blessed God has said, Everything that is consecrated in Israel shall be his, i.e. the priest. He therefore took the whole carcasses and marched off, leaving the widow and her orphan daughters overwhelmed with affliction. <laughs> so... The problem with that is it's Korah trying to say that the law of God given to Moses was oppressive. And that can't be really true. But you can see how it could be abused by the priesthood very easily. And like I said, I'm not even mentioning the laws of the Pharisees. For example, if you spit on the ground, you're working on Sabbath. Why? Because you spit divides the dirt, and that is work because it's plowing. You spit, you plow, you work. Or if your house burns on fire, you, if you gather up all your clothes to get out of your burning house, you just did work, and you violated the Sabbath. You saved your clothes, but you are going to be cut off from Israel because you violated the Sabbath. Now, of course, you can wear the clothes out, so if you take your time in your burning house to wear the clothes out, you haven't worked on the Sabbath. Well, that's a yoke, folks, of slavery that nobody can bear. And by golly, if the early church had decided to make the, the Gentiles go along with all that nonsense, you and I wouldn't be here today. Peter says in verse 11, we are saved in the same way that they are. Paul says in Romans 3, 9, What then? Are we any better? Not at all. Are we Jews any better than the, the, than the Gentiles? Not at all. It's all the same, folks. 
Jews and Gentiles are saved by believing in Jesus Christ. Now notice how strong Peter is here. He turns around and he calls his pharisaical opponents in the council. He says, he calls them out and he says, you are testing God. Now that's serious business to tell a Jew he's putting God to the test. You're making him angry. You're provoking him. Peter had strong, strong, strong evidence on his side. The Pharisees were not standing on strong ground and they were shut down. Acts 15, verse 12, then the whole assembly assembly fell silent, probably after Peter made that impassioned speech. The whole assembly fell silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describing all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. This is, of course, referring to the first journey that Paul and Barnabas had just gone on several years, a couple of years previous. Now, again, Luke describes Peter's evidence of Gentiles getting saved. Now, Barnabas and Paul are going to describe more evidence of Gentiles getting saved, then James is going to finish up. He's going to deliver the coup de grace against these Pharisees by talking about what the Old Testament Scripture says about Gentiles getting saved without having to be circumcised. Now, Barnabas and Paul, they mentioned signs and wonders that had done through the Gentiles, describing all the signs and wonders. They didn't say they described all the conversions, but signs and wonders. Why? Because Barnabas and Paul needed objective, credible evidence that the Gentiles were getting saved, and that tends to do it. In Acts 14, verse 3, where Paul and Barnabas were at Iconium in, in uh, central Galatia there on the first journey. So they stayed there in Iconium for some time and spoke boldly in reliance on the Lord, who testified to the message of his grace by granting that signs and wonders be performed through them. So you see, God is testifying, giving credible evidence to what? And it doesn't say he gave credibility to the apostles. It says he gave credibility to the message of his grace the signs and wonders testify to the word not to the apostles that's what something that a lot of evangelicals miss when they look at that passage where is it i can't remember it's hebrews 2 or hebrews 4 where it says the word was confirmed by signs and wonders following it doesn't say that the apostles were confirmed this is this is because cessationists love to say well in order to be apostle you've got to have signs and wonders that's not what that verse says it's the word that's being confirmed not the apostles and same here in Iconium. It was the word, the message of his grace that was confirmed, not the apostle, not Paul and Barnabas themselves. Now, here's some examples of signs and wonders on that first journey. Elamus the sorcerer on Paphos, on the western end of Cyprus, in Acts 13:11, Paul struck him blind. And then when Paul and Barnabas cured the cripple at Lystra, in Acts 14:10, and then the people at Lystra then thought that Barnabas and Paul was Zeus and Hermes, <laughs> so. Yes, they did signs and wonders everywhere on their on their journey, and these signs and wonders were good evidence to the Jews who didn't believe that Gentiles could get saved without being circumcised. We go to verse 13 in Acts 15. After they, that's Paul and Barnabas, stopped speaking, James responded. That's the other of the three pillar apostles. Brothers, listen to me. Now, this James is probably the brother of the Lord James. We know it's not James, the brother of the apostle John and the son of Zebedee. He had already been murdered by Herod Herod Agrippa I in Acts 12, 2. And he, Herod Agrippa I, killed James, John's brother, with a sword. Now, that's not a slam dunk because some people dispute whether this James was the brother of the Lord. Some say he was James, the son of Alphaeus, who was one of the original of the Twelve Apostles, also sometimes called James the Lesser. James and Fawcett and Brown punts and says, whoever this James was, well, we're going to assume it's James, the brother of the Lord, just because that's the majority view. Now, as I said earlier, he's going to add scriptural evidence to the evidence of the miracles reported by Peter in Acts in Cornelius' house in Acts 10 and by Paul and Barnabas 
on the first journey in Acts 13. And in my humble opinion, this is the perfect way to argue the truth of the, of the gospel. Miracles plus the word. Why should it be one or the other? This doesn't do any good to do a miracle unless you preach next to the miracle. And it also does, well, I shouldn't say it doesn't do any good. Obviously, it does do good to preach the scripture. If you don't do a miracle, a lot of people get saved that way. But why not, why not do both? Very effective. Now, this James, he gets up and stands up to speak. Some people say, some Protestants say, hey, James is the president of the council. He was the guy in charge. I'll tell you what, Western Christians love to find out who's in charge. Adam Clark and Jameson, Frown, Jameson Fawcett and Brown point that out. And the reason that these Protestants say that James is the council is they want to dump on the Roman Catholics, who say that Peter was in charge because Peter was the pope. And the way the Roman Catholics, at least Catholics in Adam Clark's day, got around this problem of Peter being the Pope, but James being the president here, being, uh, being the one that got up and spoke, is they say that, yeah, well, we'll grant you he was president of the council, but the reason was is because the council was held in his church. Well, that's an interesting argument. There's only one church in Jerusalem. That's not going to fly. Well, whoever was in charge, the Protestants and Catholics argued with each other. It doesn't matter who was in charge because nobody was in charge. You can't say Peter. I mean, if you want to say James is in charge because he got up and spoke, well, then Peter's in charge because he got up and spoke. How about Barnabas and Paul? They got up and spoke. Were they in charge? No. Nowhere in Acts 15 does it say that James is the president of the council. Just because James announced his opinion, as some people say, that doesn't make him the president. In Acts 15, verse 19, James says, Therefore, in my judgment, or in my opinion, or in my humble opinion, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties. We shouldn't put the Gentiles under the yoke of the law. So James got up, he gave his speech, and then he says, In my opinion, and because he had to submit his views to the council so that everybody would agree. This was a classic example of consensual decision-making. The whole account shows that. Let me repeat, Acts 15:4. When they arrived, that's Paul and Barnabas arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders. Everybody was involved. Acts 15, that was not a decision-making, but it was a welcoming committee. Acts 15:22. Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to select men among them and send them to Antioch. That's the whole church decided to distribute the letter, the decision of the Jerusalem council. Now, James's getting up and speaking against the legalists would have great weight in the council because he was disposed to legalism. He was the leader of the Jewish Christians. As Jameson Foss and Brown put it, James had a, quote, conservative reverence for all Jewish usages within the circle of Israelitish Christianity. <laughs> I mean, if you read his book, is he very Jewish, right? Faith without works is dead. As James wrote that, assuming it's the same James, and I think it was. We go to Acts 15, verse 14. James is speaking to the council. Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take the Gentiles of people for his name. He was referring to Peter's previous report of what happened at Cornelius' house in Acts 10. He calls him Simeon, not Peter, because this is a Jewish meeting and Simeon is the Jewish name. Old Simon Peter had four names, Simon, Simeon, Cephas, and Peter. Sometimes it's hard to keep them straight. Let me give you a quote from Gill, quote, Simon and Simeon are one and the same name. The former is only a contraction of the latter in the Syriac language. Simeon was his pure Hebrew name. So Simon is in Syriac, which is Aramaic, and, is, and it's, uh, it's a contraction of Simeon. James is speaking to an assembly of Hebrews, so he uses the Hebrew name Simeon. Simeon is the full Hebrew name, and so that's the name that James used here. We go to verse, and I notice that, that James does not call him Pope. He's just, he calls him by his first name. None of this kiss my ring stuff, as if Peter's the first pope. 
So James continues in Acts 15, verses 15 through 18. And the words of the prophets agree with this, as it is written, After these things I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again, so the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does these things, known from long ago. Now, James is specifically quoting Amos, and the quote is pretty close, except that James uses the Septuagint for the quotation, and the Septuagint, as Adam Clark says, varies considerably from the Hebrew text. So there are some differences. I'll point them out as I read Amos 9, 11 through 12. In that day I will restore the falling booth of David. I will repair its gaps, restore its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that are called by, by name. This is the Lord's declaration. He will do this. Now, Amos says that the Jews are going to possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations, which is just another way of saying the Gentiles. When James quotes that passage from Amos, he says, he doesn't say the rest of e- the, the remnant of Edom. He says the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Well, the rest of humanity is Gentiles. So it's the same idea, even with the different translations. The, the point, of course, of the quotation is, is that God is going to call all the nations, the Gentiles, into his kingdom, into the restored, fallen house of David. That's a good quote. That's a good quote for particularistic Jews who don't think the Gentiles are going to get saved. I mean, right here in Amos, it says that they, the ancient Jews, the Jews may possess the remnant of Eden and all the nations, all the nations. That's the Jews. That's the Gentiles. Now, James in verse 18 says that all this is known from long ago. That's not a quote from Amos. That's James adding that. And what he's saying is, is that this idea that the Gentiles are going to come into the kingdom, that was known from a long time ago, i.e. known all the way back in the time of Amos, chapter 9, verses 11 through 12, because Amos prophesied just around 760 to 755 B.C. That was a long time ago. So even years and years, centuries ago, Eight centuries ago, seven centuries ago, it was prophesied in the Hebrew Scriptures, which you Pharisees are supposed to believe, that Gentiles are going to be brought back into the kingdom. So there's your scriptural proof to punctuate the physical evidence that Peter and Paul and Barnabas had just given to the council. Now let me say that this is a famous verse that's involved in theological controversy, dispensationalists, maybe other pre-mill people, I don't know. I know dispensationalists do this. This is how they do it. And then I've studied Bible... Bible mentions the two options here. The first option, which, I, which I'll call the dispensational option, is that says there's three sequences that Amos is talking about in, in Amos and James, also quoting Amos. First of all, in Acts 15:14, Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. That's referring to the church. So James says, okay, Simeon, in talking about Cornelius, is talking about how the Gentiles are coming into the church at the church age the second thing that's going to happen is in verse 16 we will have restoration of israel as a nation verse 16 says again this is james quoting amos after these things i will return and rebuild david's fallen tent i will will, i will rebuild its ruins and set it up again the dispensationalists say that this is means a secular nation of israel that's set up which of course happened in 1948 and then the third stage is refers to the final salvation of the Gentiles. This is in Acts 15, 17-18, James quoting Amos. So the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles. That's the Gentiles who come into the church after 
the nation of Israel was set up, I guess, in the millennial kingdom. And I don't know, I don't know how all that works. But the point is, is that the fallen tabernacle of David, which is rebuilt, is the Jewish nation, not the church. Well, I am not favorably disposed to that erroneous opinion. Let's take the other option that the NIV Study Bible gives, which is this. James is merely quoting Amos to confirm God's intent to save the Gentiles. That's exactly what it means, in my humble opinion. Using Occam's razor, the principle of parsimony, the simple of explanation is usually the best, and that's the simplest explanation. The fallen tabernacle of David is talking about how the Old Testament a nation of Israel had fallen, the Old Covenant was over with, the New Covenant had begun, and the New Israel had been established by Jesus, and that's how David's fallen tent was going to be rebuilt, by the Church of Jesus Christ. I know the pejorative, the dispensationalists will say, using that pejorative term, Oh, that's replacement theology. I prefer to call it fulfillment theology. But anyway, we're not going to get off into theology here. I'll just leave you to decide between those two options. We go to verse 19. James says, Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. And of course, the difficulties would be by making them get back under the yoke of the law. Notice how James very humbly says, In my judgment, he's seeking for consensus. He's trying to win over people in the Council, he's not pulling right. He's saying, this is the way it's going to be, guys, because I'm in charge here. That's the way most pastors will do it in America, unfortunately, but that's not the way you're supposed to do it. Now, they didn't put difficulties on the Gentiles, James says. We shouldn't do that, but they did put four requirements on them in verse 20, which we'll talk about in a minute. And, of course, the question is, how does this square with keeping Gentiles free from the law? Why didn't they just say, we're free from the law, do what you want to do? Well, there's some reasons for that. The four exceptions, which I guess I should jump ahead here, the four exceptions were the Gentiles need to stay away from things polluted by idols, number one. Number two, stay away from sexual immorality. Number three, don't eat anything that's been strangled. And number four, don't stay away from blood, whatever that means. All right. So why did they put those four requirements on the Gentiles when they're trying to keep them free from the difficulties of having to be circumcised in order to be saved? Well, here's some answers to option, options to answer that. The NIV Study Bible, option one, these four prohibitions involved areas where the Gentiles were particularly weak. And, and this is what I'm saying. That would be similar to telling a converted alcoholic not to frequent bars. In other words, you, you don't tell a converted alcoholic, in order to maintain your salvation, you've got to stay away from bars. No, you're saying in order to keep them getting drunk again. So, you, so these prohibitions, for example, was telling the Gentiles, yeah, you've been sexually immoral, but you've got to stay away from that, not to get saved, but just to keep from getting AIDS or something. So that's, that's the first option. I think that makes a lot of sense. Second option, according to, the NI, according to the NIV Study Bible, the Jews would be particularly repulsed by violation of the fourth stipulation. And as a matter of comedy, a matter of working together with the Jews, Jews and Gentiles have got to get together. We don't want, we Gentiles, or excuse me, we don't want you Gentiles to cause Jewish believers to stumble. You start eating meat that's still in its blood, or you start drinking blood, by golly, you're going to cause the Jews to stumble, and we're going to have trouble in the church. So option number two is the four prohibitions put on the Gentiles were not to say that they needed to do that to get saved, but it was rather a political thing, or a not making your brother stumble type of thing. The third option, the NIV Study Bible says, in order to explain this, is that the four stipulations that the Jerusalem Council passed were believed by the Jews to be given by God before the law and therefore had nothing to do with the law. Well, that's interesting, but I don't think that explains it. I think the best answer is either A or B, or one or two. Keep the Gentiles away from areas they're weak with, but the best answer, I think, is 
we don't want to call you we don't want you Gentiles to cause the Jews to stumble. We got to get along here in the church. But at any rate, those four prohibitions had nothing to do with salvation. We go to verse twenty. James continues, but instead we should write to them, write to the Gentiles, to abstain from things the Gentile Christians, to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. Those are the four prohibitions. Now, things polluted by idols means things sacrificed to idols. We know that in verse twenty nine. The letter that they eventually wrote to the Gentile Christians said that you abstain from food offered to idols. That means things that are polluted by idols. So the idea is you offer meat to an idol, you pollute it. Now, of course, a Gentile's free to eat that, but don't do it if it's going to cause your Jewish brother to stumble. Nothing sinful about it in itself. Abstain from sexual immorality. Well, they're supposed to do that anyway, regardless of the the legalism question. <laughs> they're supposed to do that anyway. It's probably mentioned because... As the NIV Study Bible says, this was a sin taken too lightly by Greeks. And I say that's very similar to America. We're living in a sexual cesspool here. Americans never notice the difference between a woman and a lady. They'll fornicate with anyone from 18 to 80. So Paul, the Corinthians was the same way. And so we, so the, the council says, don't do that. You're going to cause, well, not only are you going to mess yourselves up, you're going to cause the Jewish believers to stumble. NIV Study Bible points out that sexual immorality was often associated with certain pagan religious festivals. And so, if so, that would be a, a tie-in with the abstain things polluted by idols, abstain from sexual immorality, which is associated with idol worship. It could be. could be. Now, don't eat things strangled. That means when you strangle an animal, the blood stays in the animal, and you're not supposed to eat anything with blood. The idea is to stay away from blood. This is according to the NIV Study Bible. Even This was even before the law, Genesis 9-4. However, you, Noah, must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. Unfortunately, people thought that meat strangled was considered a delicacy. Well, you're not, the Gentiles thought that. You're not supposed to do that. A Jew is not supposed to do it. So, again, don't do that. Gentiles, you're going to make the Jews upset with you. That was considered particularly obnoxious. It's like, boy, eat a steak with that. Like, how about red-eye gravy? I know there must be some blood in it. You eat steak with all that gravy, and I look at it, and I think, eee, that's probably some blood in there. Ooh, it tastes so good. But if it's going to cause you to stumble, don't eat it. Now, the fourth prohibition was to abstain from blood. Well, now, blood sounds like eating blood. But the question is, is why would the council mention that since strangled meat had already been mentioned? And, of course, that refers to don't eat meat that still has blood in it. Well, the NIV study Bible speculates that perhaps this refers to consuming blood apart from meat. In other words, just draining the blood and drinking the blood straight. Now, I wonder why anyone would do that personally. It's just disgusting to me. But I know people do it. I've, I forgot where. I've been in China so long. I know I've heard over there somewhere that somebody did it. Maybe it wasn't in China. I don't know, but I know that some people do that. But drinking blood was expressly forbidden in the Jewish law, Leviticus 17:10 through 12. Anyone from the house of Israel or from the foreigners who live among them who eats, my, eats any blood, I will turn against that person who eats blood and cut him off from his people. For the life of the creature is in the blood, and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you and no foreigner who lives among you may eat blood. Now, of course, the whole purpose of the Levitical laws, prohibition against eating blood, was to make blood separate from ordinary profane activities because blood has the life in it and the life has to be sacrificed for sin, has to be snuffed out. And so it had great symbolic significance in God's redemptive plan there. And so he didn't want people messing with that. Same thing as you're not supposed to unclean. A woman's unclean when she menstruates. Nothing wrong with the blood. Nothing Nothing, you know, unholy about it, but 
blood needs to be distinguished from normal uses and sacrificial uses. Deuteronomy 12:23. But don't eat the blood, since the blood is the life, and you must not eat the life with the meat. Don't eat life with the meat. Leviticus 19:26. You are not to eat anything with blood in it. You are not to practice divination or sorcery. All right. So the Old Testament law is very clear. Don't eat blood. Adam Clark has an interesting idea. He says it's not referring to eating blood at all, but it refers when, when the council says to, for the Gentiles to abstain from blood. That means to abstain from cruelty, manslaughter, and murder. In other words, abstain from shedding blood, not abstain from eating blood. I don't know. I think it, would be, it wouldn't be necessary to warn the Gentiles against doing that. That's, you know, even a degraded Corinthian or degraded Greek person would know you're not supposed to do that. That would have been obvious. Now, let's finish up this thing about not eating blood. John Gill points out, this is really off the subject, but he says blood contains very bad toxins, dangerous to health. I'm not a doctor, but I wouldn't be surprised. Holla, you ain't going to catch me eating it. But at any rate, there are your four prohibitions. We finish up Acts 15 with verse 21. James continues, For since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city, and every Sabbath day he has read aloud in the synagogues. Now this is an interesting statement. What has that got to do with the four prohibitions that were just sent out? Because, because Moses is proclaimed in the synagogues everywhere in every city from a long time ago? Here are the options to explain that. Option number one, since Jews were everywhere in the Roman Empire where Gentiles were, Gentiles would hear the law proclaimed all the time, and they would then think that they needed to be under the law to get saved. So since we have all these legalists out there in the synagogues all over the Roman Empire preaching that you need the law to get saved, we need to send this letter out. We need to send this letter out and tell them that they don't need to get circumcised to get saved. They don't need to keep the law to get saved. Option number two, since the Jews already had the law of Moses to tell them what not to do, because Moses is proclaimed in every city and every Sabbath day is read aloud in the synagogues, since ancient times all over the place, law, 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 law is preached everywhere, and the Jews already had the law of Moses, the Gentiles needed some instruction too about what they should not do, the four prohibitions. That's Adam Clark's view. Here's Jameson Fawcett and Brown's view. Since the Jews everywhere constantly had the law of Moses preached to them, they would constantly be aware of how they would be offended by eating blood and so forth. So the Jews are going to be hypersensitive to this idea of eating blood, etc. So the Gentile Christians especially needed to be told not to offend them. So therefore, they're given these four prohibitions. I think Jameson Fawcett and Brown's probably right on that obscure point. With that, we finish with the Jerusalem Council. In the next audio, we'll take up how the whole church sent out the letter and messengers carrying the letter giving the decision of the Jerusalem Council. We'll take that up next time. I hope you enjoyed this audio.